This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara, 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I will be reading two short stories published in Weird Tales by Allison V. Harding. The Marmot from the March 1944 issue and Take the Z-Train from the March 1950 issue. In the background, I will be playing music from 1944. Currently, we are listening to Wire Recorder Piece by Halim El Dab, an Egyptian composer. Uh, this excerpt is all we have left of the earliest known work of music concrete, uh, the expression of Tsar, a 20 to 25 minute piece which predates Pierre Schaeffer's work by four years. I'll tell you more about it after the story. The Marmot by Allison V. Harding Such a harmless-looking tiny creature, but animals possess strange abilities well beyond our kin. I have never admired my brother. Edward Ellis was a vain, selfish blusterer. He had no use for hard work, for ethics, and not much use for me. After a small family inheritance was divided between us, I didn't see much of him. I invested my share in a small business while Edward preferred to jog off for some exotic alien soil. Good riddance. Still, he was my brother, and when I got that agonizing telegram, Jim, come quick, need you, desperate, I reacted the way any man would. I hadn't seen Edward for quite some time, and the tone of the wire from my usual confident, self-sufficient kin puzzled and upset me. The address was in a city not more than a few hours distant, and I was able to get there by the evening of that same day. I remember the shock of surprise that hit me when I saw Edward. True, It had been two and a half years since I'd laid eyes on him, but a normal man shouldn't change as much as Edward had. He greeted me almost hysterically. My God, I'm glad you're here, Jim. His palm was moist with sweat as we shook hands. Well, Edward, what's this about? You look done in. I noticed that his rooms were comfortable in an apartment of good taste Without speaking, he motioned me absently to a chair. I sat down and looked up at my brother, pacing in front of me. His small pig eyes that I had disliked in the old days, their furtiveness always a signal of some devilment, were dilated with fear now. I kept quiet, waiting for him to break the silence. His quick, nervous little movements stopped all of a sudden, and he stood in front of me. Jim, the doctors tell me I'm, well, 
mad. They tell me I'm insane. They want me to go away somewhere to be treated. I controlled my surprise, and he made no comment. Edward went on. But it's outrageous. It's not as simple as that. I wish I could make you believe me. Start at the beginning, I suggested. You and your affairs are strange to me after all this time. Edward forced himself into a chair at my side. He had lost weight, I noted, and his once round, pouting face had thinned unbelievably. Look, Jim, I want you to go to see Dr. Jeffries. He's the man who's taking care of me. Oh, I've been to a lot of others, but he's supposed to be the tops. You and I haven't gotten along, but you know I'm not crazy. You know that's absurd. I don't understand, I started. Edward hurried on. You see, I do have kind of an affliction, but it's a physical thing. It isn't mental. I know it isn't. I know it isn't. I cleared my throat. What this boils down to, Ed, is that you want me to go to Dr. Jeffries and vouch for your sanity? Isn't that a little silly? I mean, what weight would my opinion have? I haven't laid eyes on you for, well, what's it been? 30 months? Edward got up and came over to me. He gripped my arm in a nervous spasm. Jim, at least go with me. Go with me to Dr. Jeffries tomorrow morning. We've never asked much of each other. This, you gotta do for me. I nodded wearily. All right, Ed. Can you put me up here for the night? He smiled and patted me. Sure, sure. I'm so glad you're staying. I bedded down in the spare room next to Edward's room. I had brought some order blanks along and decided to study them after I got into bed. My business was still young, and I had a consuming interest in it. I guess my concentration on these personal matters was so great that the noises from the next room grew into a full-throated cry before I heard them. Without waiting to slipper my feet, I padded across the floor to the door leading into the adjoining room. It was unlocked, and I burst into my brother's room. He was on top of his bed, doubling over in agony. A strange, horrible, whistling cry came from him. I reached him in a split second. For God's sakes, Ed, what's wrong? I thought fleetingly of an acute appendicitis attack, but then I saw he was gripping the upper part of his right leg. As I laid my hands on him, the paroxysms of pain seemed to pass. He shuddered beneath my grip and straightened from his jackknife posture, though still clutching his thigh. I stood helplessly alongside. You see, this is what they've been telling me is mental, he said in a voice weakened by his ordeal. Mental. Get that, Jim? They tell me I'm imagining this thing. What thing? This pain, this hideous something in my leg. In heaven's name, man, tell me what you mean. 
Edward turned, a look of horror and hopelessness, towards me. He prodded his thigh. There's something in there, Jim. Something alive. Something that means to kill me. We saw Dr. Jeffries at 10 o'clock the next morning. The psychiatrist, for that is what he turned out to be, was an elderly man whose forceful personality could be felt the minute one stepped into his consultation room. Edward immediately launched into a minute description concerning his attack of the previous night. He turned to me for corroboration. I nodded slowly. Yes, I saw it, doctor. Obviously, my brother was in great pain. Dr. Jeffries smiled kindly. Of course, of course. He is in great pain, Mr. Ellis. But the cause of that pain, he tapped his forehead significantly, is here. Edward's reaction to this announcement was immediate. It's impossible, impossible, I tell you. I know what I feel. It is there. There's something there in my leg. I'll go elsewhere. I'll try another doctor. Dr. Jeffries shook his head. Do as you wish. He looked directly at Edward. Now, I wonder if you'd mind if I had a few words with your brother? Edward went ungracefully out of the room. After the door was shut, again, the physician turned to me. It's a good thing you're here to take care of him, Mr. Alice. Your brother is a very sick man. Would you tell me the situation, doctor? I know so little. I saw him last night for the first time in two and a half years. He's been away, out of the country, for a great deal of that time, I believe. I knew he traveled, but we never kept in touch. Then I probably know more about him, Mr. Alice, than you do. It's an interesting case. He doesn't make things easy for us. He should be under constant treatment. I leaned forward. I don't question your judgment on the case, Dr. Jeffries. However, as I said before, I saw this attack last night. I will swear that my brother was suffering hellish torture, actual physical pain. He clutched his leg in agony and told me that there was something, that's what he said, something, there that would destroy him. Precisely. That has been his story all along, Mr. Alice. Originally, he went to a general practitioner and made a fool of himself, demanding x-rays and undergoing other clinical procedures. You know, the mind does strange things. It can deceive us into believing that one part or another of our anatomy is the site of excruciating pain. You mean that he is really insane? Dr. Jeffries tut-tutted. Insane? What does that word mean? That is a loose, ineffectual term at best. Perhaps all of us are a bit what the layman calls insane. Let's say simply that your brother is in desperate need of care. He is distinctly a mental case. Well, what do we do, doctor? Jeffries fiddled with the water on his desk. 
Simple. He must be sent away, somewhere where he can be under supervision. I recommend that you get Edward's consent so that we can send him to Harwood Helm. He'll get excellent care there. If there's any hope of bringing him out of this condition, it lies following such a course. I considered for a few moments. What you say seems to make good sense. Of course, I feel in fairness to my brother that I should get another opinion. Jeffreys smiled. By all means, Mr. Alice. Edward has been to several other psychiatrists here in town. I'm sure you will find they concur in my diagnosis. I have discussed his problem with them. Well, I guess that's good enough, I said after a moment's thought. Tell me something else. Edward's phraseology was so strange last night. I was tired, and the shock of being startled by his cries was terrific. But I found myself morbidly fascinated by his insistence that there was something in his leg. Doctor, he used the term something alive. Oh, that is very well, Mr. Alice. As a matter of fact, I found the key to that. When I psychoanalyzed your brother some time ago, under a sedative, hypnosis revealed a rather grisly little episode that took place during his travels abroad. I say grisly, advisedly, for frankly, it is not complimentary to Edward's character. He's never even hinted at the story, except, as I say, when under hypnotic influence. Go on, I urged eagerly. Well, started Dr. Jeffries, you know your brother liked to move around a lot. He was an adventurous, greedy man, fond of collecting valuable curios and women's hearts, if he could. This is nothing new to you. I shook my head. Edward has done many things I have disapproved of, Doctor. I know his shortcomings. You knew he went to Serbia. Well, I knew vaguely he was going to that part of Europe. Well, in Serbia, Edward pursued his usual selfish objectives, had a more unfortunate experience with a Eurasian household of some standing and power in the community. Moreover, the episode must have made an abnormally powerful impression on his mind, for the details revealed to me were minute. It seems that he became enamored with this woman of Eurasia. He courted her and apparently quite won her. One time, though, despite her cautions, he followed her home. Dr. Jeffries shuffled some papers on his desk. I took a very complete record of this impression. I have it here with Edward's case history. He looked down. Yes. Aside from beauty, this woman represented wealth. Edward, a little worse for wear, I believe, trailed her home one evening and broke into the Eurasian's house. Once inside, he stated to the ancient Eurasian master of the house that the woman must be his. Further, he began to help himself to any objects around the house 
that struck his fancy. The aged man, although a cripple, defied him, and Edward struck him brutally. At this, the Eurasian began to pronounce certain unintelligible syllables that infuriated Edward even more. But Edward refused to retreat and instead laughed and poked fun at the old Eurasian, calling him crazy and finally striking him again. At this point, Edward became aware of a small animal. From his description, I would say it was a tiny marmot. This creature was crouched at the ancient Eurasian's side. The Eurasian called to Edward that he would never have his woman or his valuables, and that he, Edward, would be the one to go crazy. And of all he had, he was giving only his marmot to stay with Edward until he should lose his reason. At this, according to Edward's story, the marmot sprang at him and bit him severely in the thigh, and then magically disappeared before Edward could kill the little creature. The pain of this knifed through Edward's drunkenness, and he lurched out of the house with the Eurasian cackling in glee behind. He never returned to this place again. Apparently, the whole episode filled him with a morbid superstitious dread so that he immediately left the country. Jeffrey raised his eyes from the case history papers. Sounds like a good fiction story, I offered. A man of your brother's caliber could easily get into a scrape like that. He is fastened on that impression. He has a sense of guilt and superstitious fear about it. Well, I pushed, what about this thing in his leg? Don't you see, said Dr. Jeffries. He thinks the marmot is in his leg. I gasped. It's strange. I mused after a minute. The Eurasian's curse of whatever you want to call it seems to have come true. Edward has gone crazy. Jeffreys pursed his lips. All that is nonsense. Your brother, because of the sort of life he's lived, and probably because of certain inherent qualities, is susceptible to the sort of nagging ill-suggestion that this constituted. You know, it's often been said and proved that the power of voodoo curse lies in the morbid beliefs of the victim. I saw his point. Jeffries went on. That's why he keeps insisting on physical examinations and x-rays. He even has suggested for me that we do an exploratory operation on his leg. Although he hasn't admitted it consciously... He's looking for the marmot. All right, doctor. I guess I must agree with you. We've got to put him somewhere he'll be cared for. Wherever you think. Three of the hardest days of my life I spent trying to convince Edward of the necessity of going to Harwood House. 
Finally, I succeeded, but only because Dr. Jeffries and I conceived of the brilliant idea of suggesting that it might very well be advisable to open up the leg for an investigation. And this, of course, would require hospitalization. Edward signed the necessary papers, then without much difficulty. I saw him to the home and satisfied myself that he would receive every care. Dr. Jeffries was still in charge and was to visit him several times a week. I intended to come over once in a while from my home. It was three weeks later that I received Dr. Jeffries' summons. It was cryptic, bidding me to come to Harwood House as soon as possible. When I arrived, Jeffries sent for me and explained at once the reason for his wire. It's not for a moment that I doubt the original diagnosis, Mr. Alice, but I thought you ought to know. Your brother is a very sick man physically now as well as mentally. The paroxysms of pain occur more often. He hardly ever eats. We keep him under sedatives as much as is possible. I thought I ought to explain to you before you see him. His appearance may be something of a shock to you. I was glad he warned me, for I braced lest I reveal to my brother any inkling of my surprise at his appearance. For he had wasted away to almost nothingness. His face had a pointed, hunted look. His nose seemed to have lengthened and sharpened. His ears and lips had pinched bluish tinge. His eyes were bright with fever or eagerness to see me. I didn't know which. Well, old man, I said with an attempt at heartiness. Dr. Jeffries tells me you're not being such a good patient. Jim, he said, it's been hell. Every day it's been worse. He frowned at the nurse fixing his water decanter until she left the room. Look, look at this. And with a convulsive moment, he pulled the blankets and sheet from his legs. I looked at his right thigh beneath the rolled up pajama leg. This time, with all my control, I could not contain myself from staring, for his leg was swollen. It was purplish in color and swollen at the top. Don't you see, he cried. They're neglecting me. There's something horrible, I tell you. It's crawling right up my leg, and they won't do anything about it. It's eating me from within. His voice rose in hysteria, and a nurse bustled in from outside. I patted his shoulder and went into the hall. Indignantly, I demanded to see Dr. Jeffries, and finally cornered him on the downstairs floor. What does this mean of his leg? I demanded. Doctor, it's swollen. It looks wrong to me. Jeffries frowned. So you saw it? We're all aware of that, Mr. Alice. You know, the mind is strange. Mind be damned, I said. That's not imagination. He's a swelling there, and that leg looks like there's poison in it. Hear 
me out, Mr. Ellis. I must stick to my original diagnosis. Do you know, sir, that your brother spends almost the entire day prodding and kneading and poking that leg? He's obsessed with the idea that his leg is being eaten away. We have even allowed him the concession of another series of x-ray pictures here at the home. They show no pathology, yet he insists there's something in his thigh. It's that marmot he's looking for, of course. I was silent. Jeffries spoke again. Can you arrange to stay for a few days? It might be beneficial for Edward. I agreed. But it wasn't to be for a few days, for that night my brother died. I was at his bedside, as was Dr. Jeffries when he passed away. So frenzied had been his convulsions, so fanatic his obsessions, that with his own hands he had torn cruelly at an already swollen leg, drawing blood. In his weakened, near-starved state, the anguish and agony of those last few moments were too much for him. I remembered my disgust as I sat at his bedside. The loosely hanging bedclothes were wet with blood from his final throes. My brother had been a stark madman the last few minutes of his life. I got up finally with Dr. Jeffries to leave the room. We were alone then for a moment, and we walked towards the door, his hand on my shoulder. Maybe it's better this way, Mr. Ellis. I opened my mouth to speak when my eye caught a slight movement in the dark, far corner of the room. I moved closer, Jeffrey's still at my side. I looked, and a feeling of chill, liquid horror stole through me until my scalp crawled with an unearthly dampness. For there, crouched in the corner, was a tiny, yet stout-bodied, short-legged little creature, its coarse fur matted with blood from small ears to short, bushy tail. It just sat there, silently observing us. I gasped then and reeled into the hall. I felt rather than saw Jeffrey's still beside me. Outside I turned and looked at him. His face was green-gray with pallor, but neither of us spoke, thinking it over afterward. That fact doesn't seem strange. For God knows, I value my sanity above everything else in the world. That was The Marmot by Alison V. Harding, which was first published in Weird Tales, March 1944. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB-FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. In the background of the previous story, we heard a book of music by Cage. 
This piece was composed in 1944, and it was the first piece that John Cage wrote for professional performers. That performance was actually by Zinnia Pestoff and Pascal Meyer. According to Cage, it was inspired by Mozart's music. He said, and I quote, Mozart's music strictly adheres to three different kinds of scales, the chromatic, the diatonic, and that consisting of the larger steps of thirds and fourths. And he used those uh, scales to choose the way he composed his music. Um, before that, we heard Wire Recorder Piece by Hallam Eldab. And now, we are listening to Sonata for Solo Violin, uh, number 117, uh, Tempo de Cacation by Bella Bartok, performed by Roma Totenberg. And now for our next story. Z-Train by Allison V. Harding from Weird Tales, March 1950. A ghostly train that never was heads for a ghastly destination that couldn't be. Take the Z-Train by Allison Harding. The seer had said, All things of certain wisdom and uncertain origin would derive so well from seers. At the end, the old look back to relive and see again the pattern of their lives. But the young, particularly favored by destiny, which otherwise seems to have neglected them, look searchingly forward and for this brief instant of eternity see truly what would have been ahead before the light snuffs out. It was a few minutes past five when Henry Abernathy left the office. It was always a few minutes past five when Henry Abernathy left the office. But that time he had taken care of the overflow of work, which somehow always found its way to his desk towards the end of the working day, and had put away his seersucker coat in the general employee's locker. Longer ago than it would do to remember, Henry had been pleased by the title of Junior Assistant Supervisor of Transportation. He was an assistant, all right, to everybody in the office, supervisor of nothing, and Junior, that was a laugh, with the gray in his hair and the stooped shoulders. As usual, Henry walked three blocks directly south from the office to the subway station, stopped only for the evening paper at the corner stand. 
It was all quite as usual, but he had been telling himself all day that this was an important day. He was going to break clean from the old life. From the earliest, a phrase had been running through his head. It ran in well-worn channels, for he had thought this thought before. He knew, though authorship was obscure. The seer had said, and the quotation, for that it must be, fascinated him. He knew not why. He'd never known why. Henry... Abernathy had believed before in the clean break from his meaningless routine, from the same old faces at the office, the same stupid tasks, the same fear that lashed him with its thongs of insecurity to his humble position. Thinking this way took him down the metal-tipped subway stairs, through the turnstile and onto the lower level, where he waited for his train as he had, it seemed, thousand times before. He was suddenly struck with this dim, twinkle-lit cavern way beneath the perimeter of the Earth's surface. The people around him, the steel girders, holding the rest of the world from tumbling in upon him, the gum machines, the penny scales, all these seemed to go out of focus with his concentration on his inner thinkings. Through instinct, he watched the black hole to his left at the end of the platform. He watched more closely, narrowly, as first the noise and then the flickering something away in the tunnel came closer, still closer. He looked up. He knew not why, for it was a completely irrelevant act. At the ceiling of the underground station, it seemed in the subterranean gloom as far away as the top of the universe. He was tired, he supposed. Supposed he knew. Life does that to you, doesn't it? To everyone. Abernathy wondered if those around him were as miserable as he was, or if their misery was an unrecognized, locked-up something deep inside. For this underground tomb was a place for reflection, although, conversely, in its bustle and noisome urgency, humans could take holiday from their conscience and pushing, wriggling, hurrying off and on these mechanized moles that bore them to and from their tasks, forget, and in the forgetting be complacent. Time before, beyond counting, when Henry Abernathy had waited here, like this for his A or B train, he thought that people must age faster in such an alien environment. The so hard, yieldless platforms, the dank air, the farness away from things that counted like sky and sun and wind. He wondered if people like himself didn't surely age more rapidly in a subway tomb like this, where neither hope nor anything else could grow or flourish. 
The dull metal thing slid into the station, its caterpillar length bucking with shrill, rasping protests, its garish-lit cars beckoning. The doors slid open and Henry Abernathy walked automatically forward, glancing as he always did, for he was a meticulous man at the square in the window that gave the alphabetical letter of the train. There were only two that came to this platform, the A, which was the express, and the B, a local. Both would get him home. He was aboard with the doors slid silently closed behind him and the train jerking, jumping to life again. He was sitting on the uncomfortable cane seats when what he had just automatically glanced at in the identification square on the outside window took form in his mind so strongly that he got up and walked over to the window and looked at the letter in reverse. It glowed smallly against the moving black background of tunnel, for they were out of the station now. It said plainly, so there could be no mistake. Z-Train. The subway shook with its gathering speed, and Henry went back to his seat. It was most particular. Never before had any but an A or B train run on this track. He'd never heard of a Z train. Why, he didn't even know where he was going. He sat with his hands clasped in his lap and felt on the other side of the wonder a relief that maybe this was the beginning of his adventure. The train lurched and zoomed on as the moments ticked away ominously. He realized that the underground monster fled headless and heedless without the reprieve of those occasional lighted cases in the dreadful night of the subway. Surely they would have come to another station by now. Then, wait a moment more, certainly by now... This then was his adventure. This was the difference that would, despite himself and his own weakness to affect the change, any change, alter the course for him. That part he gloated over. No more boss. No more regular hours. The train was going faster. It had been a monotonous life. Henry Abernathy, he told himself. Monotonous and quite terrible. He could confess to himself now something that he would never do in the sunshine or on the street that was somewhere miles above him. And this rushing thing that bore him on, he would confess that he had thought of self-destruction. A clamminess came over him. The air from the tunnel was dank as it whistled in from an open window at the other end of the car. It was a very long way between stations, and at this speed, that wasn't right. He sought out other faces for reassurance. Somehow, quite suddenly, there seemed to be so few of them, and with those, the eyes were averted or hidden beneath bundles or papers. Abernathy cleared his throat to test his voice. 
He would say to someone, the nearest person, Beg pardon, but what train am I on? Now wasn't that a silly question? He was sitting nearly directly across from the window where on the identification plate was set. And the plate said so clearly, Z-Train. He sat more stiffly against the seat back, tension taking hold of him and ramrodding his body. It was his imagination that said that the train plunged forward eagerly into the ever greater darkness of the unfolding tunnel, for trains don't plunge eagerly, not even a Z-Train. A poetic liberty, a figment of the imagination. Henry fixed his eyes on the nearest person to him, a very young man with books and sweater, obviously just from school, an eager young man, so eager, with dreams, Henry Abernathy thought, with a kind of sadness. The young man was looking at nothing particularly, and Abernathy thought, ah, soon he will look at me. I shall catch his eye and say, lean forward so I don't have to advertise it to the whole rest of the car. Young man, I seem to have gotten on the wrong train. A smile at my own stupidity. But just where are we going? But the young man in the sweater would not look his way. He tapped his books with his fingertips, tapped his foot on the floor, whistled through his teeth and looked out the window or up and down the car, casually, swiftly. Abernathy got up to speak to him directly, then thought better of it. He passed by close enough to see that the youngster was cleaner than most. He rather imagined he had looked something like that on his way home from school years ago. But that was far from here, both in time and space. There was a girl, a pretty girl, he noticed, for he was not too old to miss those things. Wide-set eyes, a good chin, nice mouth well-dressed, he would ask her. But of course, one didn't do that. With other men in the car, it would look, well, forward if he directed his inquiries to a pretty young girl. There were several other men, heavy-set, semi-successful or better, watch chains over their paunches, briefcases, the business type, bosses. They reminded him so. Then nearly at the door that opened between the cars, there was another man, youngish, in an ill-fitted tuxedo, probably going to a party. It was a rented tuxedo, Henry Abernathy thought to himself with some satisfaction. He knew what that was all right. Why, when he'd been just about that age, he once rented a tuxedo, and it probably had looked no better on him than it did on that fellow. Abernathy reached the door and clutched at the reddish-yellow brass knob. It had the reassuring feel of all of life, of reality, with the stickiness from scores of hands, people opening and closing it, walking forward, walking back, touching it with their hands. 
He went forward then, adding his steps to the speed of the train in that direction. Was it one, two, or three cars? He wasn't sure, nor was he of the other passengers. He staggered a little to the rocking of the subway beneath him. He yearned suddenly to be rid of this thing, this scene, this place. All those figures, those persons he sat with in the first car took on a strange, nightmarish familiarity in his mind. It was the drudgery, the overwork, and the hopelessness of his life that made him this way, he excused. Like other people say, something I ate. That was what made him know the young boy with the sweater was Henry Abernathy. And so too, perhaps, was the slightly older man in the rented tuxedo. The girl was the she who had said no. That was long ago, too. And those men, those out-of-shape, pudgy, expensive, cigar-smoking men, were the bosses he'd worked for and others he hadn't worked for who had given him a glance and dismissal with a look as being beneath them and unworthy of their attention. The fullness of horror overtook Henry Abernathy as he reached the front of the first car. He leaned against the motorman's compartment and looked ahead at the tunnel rushing onto them and around them. The tunnel curved away, curved away, always turning, it seemed, as though they were going in a circle. Henry stood and watched, fascinated. He could go no further. He could not go back. He looked curiously into the motorman's cubicle. The place was dark and the shade drawn neatly to the bottom of the window. But there was a man in there with a motorman's cap and gloved hand rested on the throttle pulled full open, a man who swayed with the motion of the train as he drove, a motorman. The years came back to Henry like leaves falling in sequence, and those people back there behind him were all parts of it, of himself and of others he had known. The train then was what? his life from beginning to end and his destiny? He stood hypnotized by his thoughts, drawn in by the dark fascination of the tunnel ahead. The little yellow lights that flashed by, marking with their feebleness both space and speed. It was an eternity that Henry Abernathy stood there, or it was one second, it mattered neither. But ahead, finally, he saw something. It was not exactly a station, but there was a light, a small flickering light, set in the side of the tunnel, and they seemed now, instead of rushing towards it, to float towards it. The screeching, groaning, complaining shrieks of the subway at high speed died away, so they must be slowing down. The light came nearer, there was a sign, a very big sign. He'd seen them before on the occasion when a crowded train at rush hour stopped between stations in the darkness of the tunnel and the sign, perhaps pointing or indicating a nearby stairway that leads to the above. The sign says exit. 
There was a sign here under the light, but look, there was more. Across the tracks, there was something. He watched intently during the hours. It seemed that it took their train to roll closer. It mattered not which he saw first, in what order he perceived these things. The sign, the thing on the tracks, the thing on the tracks, the sign. It was a body on the tracks, lying face upward across them like a sack of something. The face was strangely luminous in the tunnel's darkness. And that face was as terribly familiar as those others behind him in the train. And it was so right and so of course that the sign under the flickering yellow light simply read Z. They were close now. Within a couple of rapid pulse beats, the body nearly under the metal monster, the sign, the Z of it growing larger and larger. And then there was a blind flash, all the brightness of all the world, of all time exploding in the tunnel, across the so familiar face and body and Z sign, into the train, into him and his head, touching chords and notes that came out like music. That's what it was, music, easy to hear as it played around and around. It was the sound of the carousel, the calliope, and as the little series of whistles played by keys like an organ, popped and hooted, Henry Abernathy went around and around in the sea of remembering on the gaily painted horse, a horse that fed and brightened itself on his tears of joy and pleasure. This was an important train day for Henry. He was going to break clean from the old life, and perhaps the old life started, or the only part of it that counted started, on the floor at home with the cream-colored walls that seemed so tall at the age of seven. And though he was much beyond it, there were blocks on the floor. He was to spell something out with them, and Mother was persistent. It was a word, a meaningless word that mattered, not among those thousands in our language. He was perverse, and there was one letter he would not add, but his mother was so persistent. Think, she said, think. And he remembered the deepening color of her face, remembered it as he remembered now all these other things, past and future. Think, she repeated, think. One letter he had to add to make the word perfect, to fill it out for her adult mind to correctness. Think, she said again, it's an unusual letter. He knew the letter so well. He had but to push it into place with his foot or his hand, but the revolt stayed him. And then Mother said darkly, Think, Henry, 
Do it or you won't go to the fair. And with the roulette wheel completed its final spin and stopped, marking its choice, and he, petulantly and still unwillingly, but broke down by the knowledge that he would lose something greater, kicked the letter into place. And she smiled with victory and said, Of course, Z, you knew it all the time, Henry. It was later then that he had gone to the carnival, almost exploding with his small child excitement. Was there enough time for all the things that had to be done and seen, touched and played with? Was there enough of him to smell and eat all of the things to be smelled and eaten? And at the end, the best of all, the merry-go-round, on the horse that went up and down, up and down, round and round, with the strange, strange, wonderful music of the calliope. He would travel miles on his green and yellow horse, even as Mother stood outside the world of his racetrack and gestured and seemed to stamp her foot wanting him to stop and making motioning noises. It was then something during his upteenth ride on the bucking green and yellow merry-go-round horse, then, so that his seven-year-old mind knew, well, the whistling sound of the calliope organ, then that something had come out of another world, it seemed, a thing of crashing noise and blinding light, a thing prefaced only by a little wetness and mother's anger as she stood, no longer controlling him, already completely outside of his world, under a hastily raised umbrella, stamping her foot and calling to him. Henry was caught up then, in that instant by his friend, who took him in this time of greatest joy, bursting like the nod of a flower. It was for that moment that the seer had spoken, that the calliope played, that Z was remembered. It was that moment that showed him how it would have been in times yet unborn to be forgotten forever in time never to be. That was Take the Z Train by Allison V. Harding from Weird Tales, March 1950. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. In the background of this past story, we've heard Dmitry Shostakovich, his piano trio number four in E minor, uh, opus 67. Um, we actually have been listening to four different trios performing it, each one performing a different movement. 
of the piece, uh, and these uh, different trios recorded it within the past 30 years. So there's one from 1991 and one from as recent as this past year. So I'll just go through them. Um, the first uh, section was uh, Andante, performed by Ilya Gringoltz, Daniel Hafflinger, Giles, and Giles von Sattel. And that was a recent recording in 2017. The trio that played after that, the uh, Allegro con Brucio, was performed by Martha Egrich, Jaden Kramer, and Mishka Maskey. After that, we heard Largo, which was performed by Rosamund's trio, uh, Martino Tremo, Ben Saivich, and Daniel Viss. And the last portion was El Caretto by the trio Del Torino. And Shostavich, I can't, I keep screwing up his name, Shostavovich. Um, was a Russian composer who was both patroned by and denounced twice by the Soviet Union. But we'll finish up this song, and this has been Books and Bonds with Ray Guns. I will be switching to the 6 p.m. slot next quarter, so check me out then, and stay tuned for our next show.